Hi, I'm Gareth, a composer for TV and an audio producer for podcasts like this. Like many others, I was lucky enough to have a positive music education. I'm extremely grateful that all that support led me to what I do today. For me, the music room was that place growing up where all the musos gathered like moths to a flame, a place to be with other creative-minded people. So let's go back there and spend some time in gratitude for all the people who've helped us get started. Welcome to the music room. This week in the music room. I ended up doing a degree in maths. Indian classical music is based on the foundation of cross rhythms and you know like you have to learn to speak a rhythm before you play it. That's the kind of the Indian notation, uh, Indian classical music notation. Hello and welcome to The Music Room, the show where I chat with composers, songwriters and musicians and look back in time to their musical beginnings. If you haven't yet heard the first couple of episodes, I've already been blessed with fascinating tales from guests Kevin Sargent and Daisy Cool. So if you'd like to know their roots into music, take a browse at musicroompodcast.uk and have a listen. In this episode, I'm going to be chatting with the, uh, well, when I say award-winning... I mean, most of the awards. Uh, the award-winning composer, Nenita Desai, whose emotive soundtracks to some of the most powerful documentaries in recent years have garnered attention from the music industry, and deservedly so. And if you hang around, later on, Nenita will be leaving an item and a piece of advice in the music room just for you. Yes, you at the back. Don't fall asleep. <laughs> it's been a long week. Uh, there are a couple of items in the music room already. We have a tape recorder, very handy little machine, and Charlie Parker's Omnibook, a lovely bit of history to help understand the amazing jazz saxophonist Charlie Parker's playing. OK, next up, music stories. This is the section of the show where I read out your musical stories and memories and a chance for you to thank the people and groups who inspired you to become a composer or a songwriter or a musician. I'd love to know your story, so if you'd like to share it, if it's in text form, email to hello at thesoundboutique.com and if you'd like to send a voice note in, and let's face it, if you're a composer, songwriter or a musician, it's going to be recorded in pretty high quality, I'd say. So use the link in the show notes. I'm not sure my email provider will thank me otherwise. So here we go. Here's a little shout out from Tim White. Hi, Tim. My trumpet teacher was one of the most encouraging tutors anyone could ever want. My GCSE music teacher was also very supportive. My experience of music school was somewhat different, but still a great experience with the extra discipline instilling a great work ethic. Ooh, that's, that's good to hear, Tim. Richard Wilkinson. Hello, Richard. I went to a pretty standard comp in Rochdale, but the school and Rochdale Music Service punched well above its weight in music teaching provision and quality. Teachers were great. There were two competition-winning brass bands. Wow. Huge influence and social opportunity for me early on. That's great, Richard. Josh Bonney. Hi, Josh. Started off at primary school in the school band where the leader, Mr Beavis, taught me everything I know and it kind of grew from there. Took GCSE where the teachers were so encouraging and definitely pushed me to perform live. B-Tech at college inspired me to write my own music and took my degree in music then. Now on my MA course in composition, go Josh, for film, TV and game and I'm so excited to have the opportunity to put my work 
to real world adverts and TV shows. Keep that excitement, Josh, and good luck. It never really goes away, does it? That sense of wonder. Amy Balcom. Hi, Amy. My secondary school teacher nearly got the sack for bullying me throughout my GCSE and A-levels, wrecked my grades from an A to a D, didn't get to uni, was told I'd never teach, never get my piano grade 8 or compose professionally. That's awful, isn't it? Just shows what she knew with 30 piano students, a distinction for grade 8 piano and a flourishing composing career. And she got the sack for bullying three years ago. Well... I think, Amy, that's karma at work, isn't it? Being creative is difficult enough to navigate without some numpty trying to mess it up. I'm very glad it didn't put you off. Uh, Oh, Amy goes on. My mentor in recent years has been not only an incredible inspiration and kick up the behind, but a wonderful friend, and I consider myself hugely lucky that they took me under their wing. It's so simple, isn't it? Be supportive, be open, be encouraging, and lift people up. And don't be a numpty like Amy's teacher. Here ends the lesson. (laughs) Thank you to Tim, Richard, Josh and Amy. Your links will go in this episode's show notes and in the next Sound Boutique newsletter. Today's Music Room guest is a TV and film composer who Film 4 labelled one of the top five composers who should be on your radar. She's a World Soundtrack Awards winner, nominated for the British Independent Film Awards, RTS winner, Ivan Novella nominee, a BAFTA Breakthrough Brit and the IFMCA Breakthrough Composer of 2020. There's so much more in the way of awards and nominations, and as of this recording, the list is just growing. But needless to say, the music of Nenita Desai is somewhat celebrated. Let's find out what Nenita is up to now, and let her take us back in time to find out how it all began for her. And don't forget to stick around for the item and piece of advice that Nenita will be leaving in the music room. Nenita Desai, welcome to the music room. Hello, Gareth. Lovely to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. You're very, very welcome. So, Nanita, rarely a week goes by that I don't see that you've been nominated for something or won an award for something. Uh, (laughs) And to be recognised by your industry must feel wonderful. But surely when Mark Kermode starts mentioning your name, that's got to feel even better, isn't it? Oh, that's, uh, yes, lovely Mark. I'm just so, so grateful that I'm on his radar, really. Um, And and it's, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, awards, it's all smoke and mirrors, Gareth. (laughs) (laughs) It's just um, a lot of hard work, as you know. And we all, as composers, we all work incredibly hard. And up until about three, four years ago in my aged long career I've never been nominated for anything let alone won an award uh awards were never ever on my radar and then I discovered oh you're meant to enter um okay (laughs) and so I think it was the first award I ever got nominated for and then actually one was a film that I scored about five or six years ago called The Confessions of Thomas Quick and it was my first big feature documentary, sort of a film that actually got into the cinema, which was the biggest reward for me. You know, to, to, yeah. that's, that's my reward is to have a, a project that people are aware of <laughs> that well, actually watch. What was that like then, sitting down in a cinema for the first time and seeing, well, hearing your music on the big screen? What did that feel like? Well, I, I tend, I'm a person who tends to look forward as opposed to backwards. And so this is really interesting, you know, doing this kind of 
this interview is mm. it's very sort of forces me to be a little bit reflective, which is lovely. And it's the most wonderful feeling, really, to sit in a room. It, it's sort of also cringy because uh, <laughs> it's like when you're writing, when you're composing music and you're on your own and you're isolated in your studio, and that's great. And then you have an audience. Um, and so I'm presenting my music for the first time to a client, for example. If I'm, uh, I have to go for score review sessions and, and spotting sessions with teams, like editors and directors, and that's as good as having a, a cinema audience, you know, listening to your work. And so I'll go for a meeting and they'll listen to my music and, and I'm sitting there, you know, with my head in my hands, almost thinking, oh, I wish I'd improved yeah. on that piano part or, you know, the, the MIDI controlling of, of that rhythm beat. And, uh, and so it exposes, it makes you feel very vulnerable. That's um, the word, isn't it? It, it yes. exposes everything. Yes. Uh, yeah. And so when I'm sitting in a cinema and and I, all I can think of was, oh, they've kept the music so low in the mix. <laughs> and I think that must be the catchphrase of every composer when they're listening yeah. back to their work on TV or, or on film. You know, think, oh, God, what's, what, why did I bother? The music is so low in the dub in the uh, mix. <laughs> we are at the mercy of the dubbing editors. If there are yes. any uh, listening... Be kind to the music. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. But speaking of the, the music, your music has been featured in so many documentaries and are connected, I feel, by a level of emotion. They're, they're all incredibly emotive. Do you mm -hmm. lean into that emotion when you're writing or do you have to check your emotions at the door sometimes so you're not in bits every day? Yeah. No, I mean, it is very difficult. And a lot of the films I've worked on have, uh, cover very dark subjects. So mm. when I'm in my studio, I'm actually in a very dark frame of mind, you know, when I'm composing, which is all the time, all day, <laughs> oh, day and night. So when I get out of the studio, I'm in a much happier place. And I, and I try to keep a delineation between the creative headspace, you know, when I'm in my studio and I'm totally immersed. I mean, mm. being truly immersed in the subject and the characters is very important for me. And of course, if it's a documentary and it's a true life uh, story and a narrative, then I research and I dive into the subject matter in order to be able to, that's my way into a project, in, in order to be able to find some kind of authenticity and integrity to the story and the characters. So yeah, it, it is very difficult and that's my way in. I, I kind of dive in and I inhabit the world of the film or the mm. subject matter. Uh, you know, when I scored The Reason I Jump, I was really I read a lot of scientific papers on on autism and how it's perceived with the different senses and 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 the same thing with Forsama, for example about the syrian uh, civil war the revolution and i i really got into the headspace and that was very difficult emotionally it's really tough yeah. but i i have to do that in order to be able to create a piece of music that when you're composed when i compose you know you're imparting a little bit of your soul into a piece of music and if you don't do that, if you say, oh, I'll get this cue done in a couple of hours and I'll work very fast because I'm on a deadline and I need to get it done. When I send it off to the director or, or they're listening to the music and they come back and they comment on it and they think, mm, Anita, there's something about this that's not quite working. I don't know what it is, but it's just not resonating. I thought, damn, I should have spent an extra couple of hours on it. And, and yeah. I could tell that I've sent off a cue in a rush. 
And so yeah. I don't do that. You know, I have to be 100% happy with whatever I send out so that when they do comment on it, at least I know with my hand on my heart that I've done justice to the scene or the, or the score or whatever it is I'm doing. So when I get feedback from a director, I have to be able to justify every single note that I have poured into yeah. that cue. And you mentioned uh, the reason I jumped there. Obviously, you did that very effectively with that because uh, Mark Kermode was saying it portrayed what couldn't be said in words, which I thought was really interesting perspective on it. For me, a score is the hidden character in a film and it's telling the audience what cannot be explained in words. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Wonderful. So uh, you mentioned before we started recording, you have lots going on at the moment. Anything you can talk about? I've finished a, a video game actually. That's Yay. coming out this summer at some point. I'm not sure when. That's the kind of the sequel, I guess, to Telling Lies, which is a, a really interesting narrative game I scored a few years ago. It's the same developer and um, it's all filmed. It, there's no CGI animation or graphics. It's, it's totally filmed on camera with real actors and then, but it's totally non-linear and you'll be able to play wow. it on various platforms. Um, so that's that's exciting. Uh, in terms of film and TV, I've got a, I've got a lot going on. Um, I'm working on a couple of drama series at the moment, one for Sky and one for BBC. Uh, very very different genres. One's a crime thriller and one is a period comedy drama, oh, uh, which is really fun. which is very so not what I am known for. I was going to say, <laughs> you know, you, you don't have to go down that rabbit hole and into the dark place. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I like it. It's it's a very fun project. It's uh, sort of guitar band based kind of oh, thing. Great. So, so that's fun. And then I've got a few feature documentaries I'm scoring, which are very, very different subjects, uh, very different musical genres. I mean, for example, 14 Peaks was epic and symphonic, and I'm scoring a few at them, others at the moment, which are very, very different so uh, musically so I, I like working on different genres because it keeps me keeps me on my toes creatively and also there's no crossover so I can't accidentally send the wrong piece of the, the music to the wrong director <laughs> I've done that a couple of times <laughs> oh can you imagine so Nisa, this sounds a little bit kind of period drama comedy yes. to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've done that once. I thought, oh my God, I've sent the wrong music to the wrong director, you know, sending them all off at the same time. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, so that's what you've got going on at the moment. If you're ready, shall we go back in time? Yeah. Here we go. When were you first aware of a connection with music, do you think? Oh, well, um, let me think. Now, funny enough, my, my mother sent me a picture of myself when I was two years old holding a vinyl single in my hands oh. I used to scream for it to the same Bollywood track to be played again and again uh, but my but my earliest uh, musical memories I think were about well my parents bought uh, this beautiful Bang & Olufsen vinyl uh, turntable LP player and uh, we used to go to I was about seven or eight I think and we used to go to the Harrods summer sales and they had this fantastic record department used to go through shelves and shelves of uh, vinyl albums that were on sale and you could pick up these old and golden gems for 50 pence, uh, this, you know, 12-inch album. 
And so we used to buy a whole load of sort of cheap knockoffs of, uh, of soundtracks, uh, sort of theme know. tunes from the 60s and the 70s. And I used to bring it home and it was like a religious experience putting the album onto the turntable. And I was never allowed to touch it. You know, I, it was this is diamond tip and so on. I was exposed to uh, the first LP that I ever had was the soundtracks for Ennio Morricone's For a Few Dollars More and uh, wow. Fistful of Dollars and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And that was, that just, my mind exploded when I heard that. <laughs> and, so so yeah. you were listening to soundtracks before you saw what they were attached to? Yes, just listening to music. You know, there's a, we had a John Barry's Greatest Hits uh, from the 60s. So it's listening to all those amazing theme tunes and the Bond scores as well, yeah. the Bond type, you know, the Bond songs and the Persuaders and the Tamarind Seed and the, the melodies. Melodies captivated me. In terms of musical education, well, I at primary school, I was very fortunate to, to have free music lessons uh, gone are those days, sadly. Yeah. But I learned the violin and the piano at school. So I went to a Church of England school primary school and uh, I could pick any instrument I wanted to and I chose the violin and the piano so I had music lessons and I, I had rather strict a really strict piano teacher who was quite fearsome I remember but I loved it and I had a few grades you know I think I got up to grade mm. five not not particularly high uh, but at home I was you know being second generation British Asian I was forced to go to um, the Hindu temple on a Sunday. And, and then I went to a Church of England school, so I would sing in school choirs. And I learned the Indian sitar and tablas uh, growing up at home. Oh, wow. So I had a very, very strict sitar teacher who taught me, gave me incredible discipline. I mean, the, you know, the sitar is one of the toughest instruments to play really well. And it has steel strings. And at the age of about 10, I was learning to pay. Uh, my guru, who comes from this uh, long lineage of virtuoso, famous uh, sitar players, was incredibly strict. And I was not allowed to, I could only play scales, uh, even just one note to get the right hand technique and the positioning is so crucial to you know, to, uh, as part of your foundation of playing the sitar well. So, uh, I think I only played, uh, one scale for the first three months of learning to play. Wow. And that was tough on me, actually, you know, I, after six months of just not being progressing to playing a proper tune, it was really mm. frustrating. Um, and what, what age were you when you were doing this? Uh, about uh, 10. I was 10 about years 10. old. Wow. Yeah. But that's I, a lot for a, for a 10 year old, isn't it's it? It's a lot. Yeah. The sitting, yeah. sitting straight. And so, and, you know, being wrapped on the knuckles. So, I mean, actually, I've got very, very tough memories of learning the sitar. But yeah. as I became a teenager, there was this amazing place uh, called the Bhavan, which is the Institute of Indian Culture in West London, in West Kensington. And that's, that was a great place for the Indian community to congregate and experience concerts and learn how Indian dance and Indian musical instruments oh, and wow. singing. So I always loved... I've always loved rhythm and percussion. And so I learnt the tablas. My mom took myself and my brother to the institute and she expected me to learn Indian dance. 
and my brother to learn the tablas, the Indian percussion. And actually it ended up being the other way around and I ended up learning percussion and my brother went into Indian dance. So uh, that was, I loved it. I love rhythm. I love tablas. I love, because I'm, I have a natural affinity for numbers and, and mathematics because I ended up doing a degree in maths. Indian classical music is based on the foundation of cross rhythms and you know like you have to learn to speak a rhythm before you play it that's the kind of the Indian notation uh, Indian classical music notation so I would speak a rhythm in 7-4 and play something else in 4-4 and do have lots of different time signatures and, and cross rhythms and double time and half time going on all the time so that was a really really um, nourishing sort of uh, period for me as a teenager. But at school, I was immersed in all styles of music when I got to secondary school. So I was, I wanted to be, at the age of 10, I discovered singing. Uh, well, I was always singing before then, yeah. but I discovered Barbara Streisand <laughs> and, uh, and musicals. So my way into Wonderful. music was, I loved Stephen Sondheim and Rodgers and Hammerstein and all those classic musicals of the day, you know, The Sound of Music and uh, you name it, um, Mary Poppins. And, uh, and so I sang in school choirs a lot. Uh, there were three choirs. There was a gospel choir and a pop choir and, and there was a Latin choir. So I, I learned to, to I, was, I loved being a part of that, that group communal uh, sound yeah. uh, that we would create. And then I played the violin in the school orchestra, and then I had my own pop bands at school. And uh, I won this comp sort of as a school's music competition, which took place at the Royal Festival Hall. Uh, I was about 13, 14 years old, and I wrote a song. I was listening to your other podcast. I was, was going to say, this just sounds like Daisy at the album. Yeah, yeah, there's a similarity there. It's really bizarre. And uh, and so I wrote a song. It was the first song I ever wrote at the age of 13, 14. And it got chosen to be performed as part of a school's thing, a big school's competition thing. And so I had a big band from the school and my music teacher was there and uh, head of department. And uh, so I sang in front of uh, a huge audience at the Royal Festival Hall, uh, which was great. And and so that really... Uh, and I used to sing in, a, in school assemblies. I went to an all-girls secondary school, and we had about 1,250 girls in the school. Mm. So in school assemblies, I used to sing in front of 1,200 girls, you know, singing Barbara Streisand songs. <laughs> That's fabulous. It was good fun. So that moment at the Festival Hall, I mean, Daisy mentioned that that moment on the Albert Hall stage kind of contributed to her thinking, oh, I could I could make a career out of this. Did you have a similar feeling? Well, it was something that was always there. You know, I loved music. Mm. I mean, I loved film as well. At school, I ran the film club and, uh, and at university, I became the film critic for the student newspaper. Wow. And I never thought that it would could be a career, that I could make a career out of it. It was something that I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to go about doing it because I, mm. I never had any mentors. I, and also, um, I mean, I was always a bit of a geek and I loved computers and I loved technology and science fiction as my dad was a big sci-fi uh, fan. And, and I loved theme tunes. You know, I grew up really captivated by 
Doctor Who and children's TV of of the day, uh, Rhubarb and Custard and Grange oh, Hill and Blue brilliant. Peter and and those theme tunes that my parents had bought, you know, with Ennio Morricone and John Barry and so on. So uh, in terms of career, I um, I was quite academic and and I was also very shy and and real introvert. So I mm. uh, ended up doing a degree in mathematics. And then I did a postgrad in music technology. And in terms of me um, wanting to get into the industry, I loved film a lot. And I loved sound and recording. And I was building up my own little recording studio at home with a Fostex X26 multi-track recorder and, and bought my first synthesizer. I was reading to Jean-Michel Jarre and I would, I would play Oxygen or I would play... Harold Faltermeyer's Axel F, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, or um, night the theme tune for Night Rider, you know, yeah. all on my all on my Casio uh, Casio synth that I had. Yeah. So so I thought that I wanted to go into music engineering, and you know, I'd buy albums, and I was really in interested in what went on behind the albums instead of the performing side. You know, mm. who are the people that you know, music engineers, record producers. I'd look at the credits on the sleeve of a vinyl album and look at, you know, what do all these people do? And I then got into buying Sound on Sound magazine and discovering, you know, the world behind the uh, performers. Daniel Lenoir was a big hero of mine. So I remember being at university and I did a postgrad course in music technology and I learned about MIDI programming and acoustics and psychoacoustics and music and emotion and that's what I was there were very few courses at the time but mm. that's something that I really wanted to to pursue further so then I met Peter Gabriel and at university he came to just the, down the pub yeah we, he, came, <laughs> he came to the university I think he was given an honorary doctorate at oh, City okay. University and it was like meeting the queen, you know, you're, yes. sta you're standing in line <laughs> and uh, I had to do a little show and tell of what I was up to, what I was doing, what I, project, I was writing some MIDI programming. Um, the my project that I was doing for my thesis was trying to create uh, MIDI software that would uh, make it easy for people to understand Indian classical cross rhythms, uh, Indian classical ah. tabla rhythms. So I showed him what I was doing. He said, oh, very interesting, Nanita. You know, we shook hands. And, and he said, well, look me up when you've finished your course. Wow. I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> and, of course, he, I, how do I get in touch with this, this guy, you know? <laughs> um, so, so I didn't. I went off and worked in the film industry as a sound designer because I, was re I, I had my own portable DAT recorder and I was out recording sounds all the time. And digital editing, sound editing had just come in with the precursor to Pro Tools uh, as a two-track audio editing software called Sound Tools. And so I ended up working in the film industry as a sound designer, sound editor. And that was fantastic grounding for me in terms of understanding the sonic landscape of sound in film and TV and how everything has its place. It's not just about the music. It's about how sound and sound effects, dialogue, foley's, music, all helps and works cohesively yeah. to tell a story through sound. Because, uh, of course, sound is 50% of a film. 
yeah. and it's not just the images on the screen. And I was very influenced by the Coen brothers and the, their film Barton Fink or Walter Murch, who did the sound design and the editing on Apocalypse Now. And uh, those kinds of films were sort of seminal for, for sound in, in movies and the way they push things forward, you know, in terms of groundbreaking technology and creatively mm. how they, you know, move things forward. So, so I did that for a couple of years and I ended up working on a film for Bertolucci, Bernardo Bertolucci and a, a Beatles biopic called Backbeat. And, oh, I uh, love that film. Oh, you can remember it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that was great, um, that film. About it was. The Hamburg, the Hamburg That's ghost. right. Yeah, yeah. The Fifth Beetle. Yeah. yeah. And I worked on Hackers, which was an early Angelina Jolie film and a film for Werner Herzog, but Lessons of Darkness, which was one of the first films to be made in 70 mil. Um, and the way he uses music in films is very off the wall and left field. Really interesting filmmaker. So I did that for a while, and I just thought, oh, I need. I, I was working in Germany actually for for Werner Herzog, and I really missed London. So I came back to London without any work and and sort of penniless. And uh, and I remembered what Peter Gabriel had said, you know, a couple of years before. And um, so I wrote a letter to Real World Studios, and of course, Real World Studios is one of the best studios in 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 the world. And for me, it would have been a dream. I really wanted to get into music engineering and the music industry. So I I heard back from Real World. They invited me to come down and have a meeting. Uh, so I met the studio manager, and um, within four hours of you know having been given a tour of the studio and and having a chat with them, I talked myself into a job as uh, Peter's <laughs> assistant music engineer. So that was a dream come true for me. And uh, I learned so much working for Peter, uh, working with world's best music engineers and producers and musicians. And uh, so I learned a lot there, um, not just technically, but I learned a lot about how to work with people and nurture creativity and, and get the best out of musicians, um, which mm. lessons that I've still still carry with me today when I'm dealing with musicians and handling sessions of my own. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Uh, and so in terms of the people who have inspired you, just listening to you talk there, I would go back to your parents taking you to the, the record sales for a start, because yeah. that just opened up a, a whole new world for you, it sounded like. And Peter Gabriel saying, look me up when you're done. <laughs> it sounds like a key person, really, because you ended up going back there and um, yes. opening yes. your mind to all these things. Yes. I mean, I, I'd listened to, I mean, there's some sort of seminal albums when I was growing up that meant a lot to me. And I remember yeah. listening to his score for The Last Temptation of Christ by Martin Scorsese. And that music, that album uh, was groundbreaking at the time, the way that he integrated world music. And I was very much mm. into world music anyway. And I mean, I've always kept an open mind and loved jazz and pop and world and classical, uh, all of those things uh, growing up. So yes, I mean, I've, I've never, it's interesting. I've never had any mentors. I've never had in the, in the traditional sense that we people have really embraced in the last few years. And I think that's so important, uh, you know, mentoring and being a mentee and assisting people. That's a real path into the industry these days. I think it's it's come more from uh, Los Angeles, from from America, where it's uh, 
you, I mean, there are many routes climbing the mountain, but that is definitely a way to go for a young composer, emerging composers, and um, assisting established composers. And that's something that I've never, ever had. So I come through the school of hard knocks by writing them, just getting straight in composing music as opposed yeah. to assisting or doing additional music or you know, whatever, orchestrating or anything like that. Um, and so having those opportunities, um, those few opportunities, uh, getting my first feature film was a massive break for me. And I did that by, there was a really fantastic supervising sound designer, a sound editor called Eddie Joseph. And he gave me a break. You know, I pestered him. I did pester him for about six months though. You know, I'd write uh, a letter once every two weeks and uh, I'd, or I'd call him up because it was, this was in the days before emails existed. Wow. And, um, and I'd call him up and say, hi, Eddie, you know, I'm, this is what I'm doing at the moment. So I'm working on such and such and uh, please let me come and visit you. And, uh, he was working at Twickenham Film Studios and so I went along for a meeting eventually. Uh, I think it took about five or six months of following this project. He he he's so sweet and polite. He said, "I'm sorry, there's nothing yet, Nanita, but um, you know, uh, <laughs> because it's very early days on the project, and uh, and it, I got right in there, right from the ground roots level, a very early stage, and uh, and then eventually I I got a meeting. I went to Twickenham Film Studios, had a meeting with him, and he said, well, "Would you like to be an assistant on on the job on this film, Little Buddha?" And, uh, and I, I would make myself indispensable and say, I know everything there is to know about this. This film was set in the Himalayas. Uh, and so I know everything there is to know about Buddhist chants. And he said, so he said, okay, well, your job is to translate these and, and trans transcribe all these audio recordings that they'd done on location. And yeah, there was all on DAT tapes and I'd have to wow. make notes and keep a, a log book of everything. And so. That was my way into yeah, making a, yourself indispensable. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I ended up working on that film for about four months. And then wow. that then led to another film and to another film and to another film. So suddenly so, you're in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So, Anita, I am asking guests to the music room to leave an item and a piece of advice for others to find. You mentioned before that you'd had a little trouble trying to find an item amongst many yes, uh, yeah. that's been of use to you, what would you like to leave in the music room? Okay, so I think I would like to leave an object that is the start, the crux of the heart of what we have to do, which is a microphone. Ah. <laughs> because everything stems from that. And I think in this day and age, it's very hard to be original and to stand out from the crowd musically. And that's something that people keep saying, you know, as an emerging composer, uh, you know, new to the industry, however young or new or established you are, really, at whatever stage you are, I think we all have sample libraries and there's a massive leveling field out there now. We all have the same technology. So what can we do or create that sets us apart from the crowd? And I always look for the imperfections in sounds to give some kind of heart and texture and, and soul to my music. And of course, samples are incredibly pristine and clean and pure. And 
what's the word, just soulless, actually. <laughs> so we can achieve that, I think, by recording our own sounds. And that's how I started. You know, I had uh, one microphone and one DAT recorder, which then progressed onto my computer. And I would just pluck and bang and scrape any instrument I could. And just going out into the world, you know, coming from sound design roots, I record natural everyday sounds. And then I built up my own sound, unique sound library. And so the microphone is at the heart of that. I think that's amazing. Very often, you know, you have something in your head, which when you record sounds entirely different. So having that kind of real tangible thing in front of you yes, to find out what you sound like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think mm. is really important, doesn't it? Yes, incredibly yeah. important. Yeah. And what advice would you have for anyone trying to do what you do? <laughs> this is, oh, there's so many pieces of advice. So, <laughs> many, so picking one yeah. thing. I mean, I, I think it, I think it's taken for granted that you can write good quality music and, and having musical skills and uh, learning instruments. And you, I mean, I don't have a formal ed musical education as such. I don't have a degree in music. And there are many very successful composers I know who don't have a degree in music or have a formal education. So, uh, so that's by the by. But I think what you do need to have is a sense of curiosity and uh, it's one thing, uh, curiosity and being able to develop your own voice. But also, I think this is a lifelong learning craft, uh, composing music. You never stop learning. So you have, to, you, you have to remember you've got to grow and evolve. I am not the composer I was 20, 15, 10, five years ago. My sound will continue to change depending on the mood of the day or the week or the month or the year. So I think having a, a musical curiosity uh, and, and not remaining stagnant uh, in your, you know, when, and that applies to everything in life as well, not just music, I think. Um, that's, that's really important. And another thing, having music is one thing, but social skills, you know, being able to network and meet people and, and, and it's all a part of that curiosity uh, yeah. as well. I think being able to communicate well, I've come across, you know, inc uh, composers that I really respect and admire. And the one thing I've noticed that is common amongst all of them, all, all those composers, is that they're incredibly good at communicating, whether it's artistically, creatively, on a business level, when it comes to networking or, you know, the social skills, those successful composers, whether their music is great or whether it's, you know, there are a lot of composers out there who are incredibly successful, no names. Okay. But they're incredibly <laughs> successful yeah. that you, you listen to their music and you go, Hmm, okay. It's not, not that wonderful, but what, what makes them what they are, you know, and they're, they're really smart and clever at um with their social skills and and being able to communicate and explain and charm and and, and uh, explain their music and uh and and network so that's something that's really uh, when i I've, I've given the odd talk at a university and speak to university students and college students and it's of course it's all about music 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 you know that's yeah. incredible whether it's developing your technology skills or learning to play an instrument, developing your music theory skills, 
immersing yourself in the world of music. Yes, that's that's taken for granted, but then there's a whole other side to being a composer. Uh, you know, in terms of your 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 rounded skill set uh, to be a working professional composer in the 21st century. Yeah, brilliant. So we have microphone going in and a kind of uh, general curiosity, communication skills, and a constant developing of your skill set. Never stop learning. Never stop learning. Yes, exactly. That is wonderful. Nanita Desai, composer, thank you so much for joining me in the music room. Thank you very much, Gareth. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.